First of all, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming, and thanks for finishing well. Just thanks for being here. Uh, when you are here, uh, you are actually participating in God's design for how the body works. Um, when you read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, you read that the body causes the growth of the body. And it causes the growth of the body when it functions properly, each part doing its own part, functioning properly. And when you sit here and you listen, and when you go into your discussion groups and you share what the Lord has been teaching you, uh, that is what that functioning is. And that is how you cause the growth of the body. So thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time out of your life um, to come here and to serve the rest of the body. So I praise God for that. Um, so in Wellspring, we do the disciplines just like we do in Build. Uh, in Wellspring, we have three disciplines, and I want to keep those in front of you. Uh, we share these every time, uh, not because we think everybody's forgotten, but it's good for us just to hear the same things again week after week after week. We share these with the guys in Build, and we tell them every two weeks, you need to keep these in front of you, um, and it's really, really important. Uh, so first and foremost, we want to be people who care for our own hearts first and foremost um, everything flows out of our heart just like your theme verse here in proverbs 4 everything flows from your heart so the way we care for our heart is by meeting alone with the lord in prayer by communicating with the lord and by exposing ourselves to god's communication to us when we have his word in our hands when it's on our lap when it's on our table and our eyes are looking at it we are taking in God's communication to us, and that is a blessing. That is what we need. God has given it to us so that we can receive from him what uh, he intends for us to have. And so what we want to do is just put in front of everybody here the importance of caring for your own heart well. And we do that by setting aside consistent time in our lives to uh, meet with the Lord. Ideally, it's a time where you can really focus and you can really concentrate and you can allow God's word to minister to you, and you can speak openly back to the Lord. And then you take the fruit of that, and you take that into your life, into your marriage, into your household, into your children, into your life with your roommates or your parents or whoever you live with. Um, the important thing here is that we start with our own heart and we bring the fruit of good heart shepherding into the life that God has given us, into the home situation God has given to us. And that allows us to speak with a kindness and a patience and a joy and a trust and an integrity to the ones that we share our home with because we've been reading God's truth for us, for ourselves, and we've been preparing our own hearts and minds. Um, so take the fruit of your own heart shepherding and bring it right into your marriage, right into your parenting, right into your relationship with your own parents, whoever it is you live with, right into the relationship with your own kids. And allow God to bless them in the way through his blessing of you as you spend time alone with him. And then you take the fruit of that, your, your well-functioning household, into this church. So when you come here on Thursday morning or you come here on Sunday morning or any other time or when you come to your small group on a weeknight, uh, you are ready to bless other people with a heart that's been cared for well and a home that's cared for well. Um, and when you find yourself in conversation with somebody, you're going to be in conversation with them, bringing to them the fruit of what you have in your own home and what you have in your own heart. So we want you to keep that in front of you. Um, <clears throat> so I want to go to one verse this week that helps us as we care for our own hearts. When you're spending time in prayer, you know, we know that prayer has several different aspects to it. And, and one of the aspects of, of prayer is, is our own confession to the Lord. Uh, we're not informing the Lord of anything that we've done. Uh, but what we're doing is we're confessing our sin to him and we're walking in repentance of that sin. And so when you find yourself in conversation with somebody, that small group or here at church, and you're talking about repentance, uh, yeah, I'm repenting from something, um, God's word actually gives us guidelines on how we can measure our repentance. So let's do this. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 11. And the story here is that Paul is writing to a church that has many, many issues. And um, this is relevant to our own heart shepherding because this gives us markers that we can use to assess how well we're repenting in any area of sin. We have sin all around us in our own lives, and, and we're walking in repentance from that sin. And, and this is a really great way to measure our own repentance. And we can bring that to bear in our prayer life with the Lord. 
Paul's writing to the church, and uh, they've provided some discipline on somebody who is living in an incestuous relationship with their, their father's wife. Uh, that came up in chapter 5 of his first letter, and uh, Paul chastised them in chapter 5 for exalting that sin. It was a, it was a gross sin. Um, they responded well, and they put the man out of fellowship, and uh, the man repented, and he did well. So by the time Paul wrote his second letter, uh, this person had repented well. And Paul here is giving us the earmarks of what that repentance looked like. So Paul is talking to them, and he's describing this repentance in verse 11. And he says, Behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And then he gives a list. He says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. What Paul gave us there was a list of, I think it's six things that we can use to assess our repentance. So when we're in in, uh, our time alone with the Lord and we're, we're sharing our heart with the Lord, we're confessing our sin and we're walking in repentance from sin, this is really good to pray through with the Lord. Is there a vindication in our own mind and our heart? Um, a vindication is an established pattern away from that sin. Are we walking away from the sin? Is there a clear, firm, obvious pattern that people can see as we walk away from sin in our lives? That's biblical repentance. Biblical repentance involves an indignation. It involves looking at the sin and having a disgust for being detested by what you see yourself and what you did in front of the holy God. That you look at it and you don't think of your sin with fondness and you don't think of it as a great experience or something that you shouldn't really do, but you enjoyed it. You look at it with the way, the eyes that God looks at it. You see it for the offense that it is against God. And you're disgusted with yourself for what you've done. A biblical repentance involves thinking rightly about the sin itself. The fear that the, the NAS uses here is a reverence for God. Biblical repentance is, is found in somebody who has a very sober assessment of God and his holiness and his justice and the cost of your salvation. Um, God in his character motivates you to live with a holiness of life. And so you live with a reverence to God as as you're near him. That's what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance is longing for the relationship that you had with the Lord before you stumbled into this sin. Longing for the restored relationship that you have. Biblical repentance involves a zeal involves utilizing every means of grace that God has given to us to wage war with this sin. It's not a passive response. It's a very active response, recognizing that God gave us everything we need to for life and godliness and to utilize every bit of that to walk in newness of life. And a biblical repentance involves an avenging of wrong. That means that we are ready to bring upon ourselves the right chastising that we need to walk in repentance from, from sin. We are willing to incur in ourselves something that we would assign to ourselves that would help us to leave that sin in a biblical way. We can never take God's place as the ultimate judge and the one who ultimately judges, but um, biblical repentance is characterized by us being ready to incur within ourselves things that we would bring upon ourselves in response that would hasten our repentance. So um, as you're spending time alone with the Lord, when you confess sin to the Lord, These are really good things to pray through to help yourself assess your own repentance because confession is really good identifying with God about our sin, but we want to have a means by which we can look at how we're actually walking in repentance. God in his kindness gave us a good example of that. Those are the things that I wanted to share with you this morning. Again, thank you for being here. Thank you for just participating in body life together. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? We're going to be looking at verse 14 today. And this is a a passage that's very, very helpful. It helps us understand how it is that we are to live in relationship with one another. Our lives are filled with relationships. And we have relationships all around us. We live in a fallen world. We live in a mixed condition. And our relationships with others oftentimes bear the marks of that. Um, 
So we need to understand how it is that we're to live with one another in this fallen condition. And at various times and seasons of our lives, we find ourselves in relationships with people who are unruly. We find ourselves in relationship with people who are faint-hearted. We find ourselves in relationship with people who are weak and with people who are very difficult to be patient with. And um, my heart here is that Grace Bible Church grows stronger. Um, he grows, that this church grows stronger because of the time we spend in our word, in his word. Um, so God has a design for us and how we're to care for one another. And um, I'm eager to see how this works out in my life and in your lives. And uh, let's do this. Let's pray. Let's ask God's help on this. And we'll go forward, okay? Lord, I do thank you for these ladies. I praise you, Lord. They are a significant part of this body. And they perform a significant function in this body. Lord, so many of these ladies are raising young children. Lord, children who desperately need to hear the gospel, desperately need to observe the gospel at work, desperately need to understand the gospel. And these women have a significant role in the lives of those young kids. They have a significant role in the small groups that they're in, and they have a significant role in the families that they're in. And Lord, we long for the day when we are no longer in this mixed condition, but today we are, we are in this mixed condition. And I pray for each one of us, Lord. I pray that your word would do its work in us. I pray that you would speak and that you would accomplish your message to each one of us. So, Lord, I thank you for the care that's being provided for the young kids right next door. I praise you again for those servants who are blessing us today. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. My wife told me to bring a bottle of water, and of course I didn't. <laughs> Admonish the unruly. She knows. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to be looking at this is perfect. Thank you. shortcomings are now going to be on the internet in about an hour. So. <laughs> it's really great. Okay. Um, really good to have an overview of the book. I want to take a few minutes to help us understand exactly where these verses fit. This verse is an instruction verse. It's just instructions. And so there's great harm when we just read a, a passage like this and we view it as just instructions. So when we see the context in which these instructions sit, that helps us a lot. So uh, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. And he met them on his second missionary journey. And on his second missionary journey, he started in what is present-day Turkey, made his way through the churches that he visited on his first missionary journey, and then he traveled west across the Aegean Sea to what's present-day Greece. He starts in Philippi, and he makes his way down to Thessalonica, and to Berea, and he gets to Athens and Corinth. And there was much persecution on that, that Greece leg of his second missionary journey. Much, much persecution. And so the churches there were, were struggling under persecution, primarily from the Jews. And um, that's true of the church in Philippi. That was true of the church in Thessalonica, uh, as well as in Berea as well. The, the first three of his major stops on uh, the west side of his second journey. So Paul is writing to them. He is traveling with Silas. Um, he had to leave quickly to go to Berea because persecution had arrived. He heads down south and he goes to Athens and he's there in Athens and he's later joined by Silas and Timothy in Corinth. And he didn't spend very long with the church in Thessalonica. He was only there for approximately a month, three Sabbaths. And uh, he taught them well and the Lord was pleased to start a church there. Uh, but he knew that there was persecution there, and the reason why he knew there was persecution there was because he himself had to flee that persecution. And so he's wondering how this young church is doing. He's very, very concerned for these dear people. And so he sends Timothy back to them uh, to find out how they're doing, and then Timothy joins him later when he's in Corinth. So we can see this. Uh, that's the setting that it sits in. He's writing this letter um, in response to Timothy's return to him and his report of how well this church is doing. And so there's really two halves to this letter. There's, there's the first half that has Paul's thoughts for the church there. And the second half of the letter is his instructions for the church there. Okay. 
And at the beginning of the, the letter, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that's where he shares his thoughts for them. And in chapter 1, he talks about his joy over their salvation. And he is just thrilled at the kind of people they are and the kind of testimony that they are giving. In verse 8, he says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. They not only receive the word, but they're actually speaking the word to other people. In chapter 2, he begins to talk about recognizing their suffering. Again, these are these Jews that have followed him all the way down through Greece to Thessalonica. They're making life hard for that church. He says in verse 14, um, Just like the church in Jerusalem, you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. There was suffering that was taking place there. He spends a lot of time in chapter 2 recognizing that suffering. And then in chapter 3, he shares how relieved he is at Timothy's report. He sends Timothy back to them. Timothy comes, checks them out, sees how they're doing. And he reports that they're doing very, very well. And he writes to just say, I am so thrilled that you're doing well. So this is a young church with a genuine gospel reputation. This is a church that is living in tribulation, but they are doing well. They're doing really, really well. He has instructions for them on the second half of the letter, starting in chapter 4. And he covers several major areas. At the beginning of chapter 4, he talks to them about the importance of sexual purity. He's speaking to them with instructions about how to live within a marriage in a way that's honoring to the Lord. We'll get into this a little bit later, but there's a problem with disciplined living in that church. In the middle of chapter 4, he has to chastise them. Um, giving them instructions as to how to live because there is a a sense of idleness that's pervading this church. And we'll get into why that is. Uh, He talks to them about the rapture of the church and what is going to take place when Christ returns for the church. They didn't have a good, clear understanding of that, and so he provides that for them, and he encourages that with them. And in chapter 5, he talks to them about the day of the Lord, and he says, this is what is going to happen when the Lord comes in his judgment. And he spends 10 or 11 verses describing that. And then he spends uh, the rest of the letter talking about relationships. Uh, Relationships with church leadership in chapter 5. Relationships with one another, uh, which we're going to look at in verse 14. And then he talks about personal holiness from verse 16 through verse 22. Habits and disciplines of personal holiness. Um, All of this was very new to the church in Thessalonica. And all of this was, was very, very necessary. Because, again, this is a church that had a pastor or who had a missionary for three weeks, and then he was gone. And they had to start on their own. So that is what Paul is writing to. That's what he's working with. um, And that's who they are. So let's look at verse 14. Paul says in verse 14, We urge you, brethren, he's writing to the brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. So what we're going to do is we're going to take each one of those, one at a time, and look at what it means. For the first three, there is an instruction that must be done and performed to a particular kind of person. So in each of the first three, we're going to look at the kind of person that he's talking about first, and then we're going to look at the instruction and what the instruction is. Okay, so this is a young church again, and they are in the middle of a lot of trial, And in the middle of this, for whatever reason, some of these people have left their work responsibilities. They've come to Christ, and there's some idleness within the church. Um, The letter doesn't tell us why there's idleness in the church, but there is idleness in the church. Paul came to know about it somehow. He somehow got word from them. Perhaps it came to him from Timothy in his report and says, hey, they're doing great. They're doing really, really well. They're, They're holding up well under the persecution, but there's this idleness that's there. We don't really know, but we see the basis of it back in chapter 4, verse 10. So head back to chapter 4, verse 10, and Paul says to them, We urge you, brethren, make it your ambition, make it what you're aiming at, to lead a quiet life, and to attend your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Admonish the unruly. The, The ESV actually uses the word idle. Admonish the idle. These are people where there's an idleness. And by the way, it didn't stop with Paul's first letter. It was still ongoing, and he had to mention it in his second letter to them. He writes his second letter a number of years later, and he says to them in chapter 3, starting in verse 6, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. 
So there's brothers who are still leading the unruly life after Paul admonished them for it in the the first letter. Verse 11, he says, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but you're acting like busybodies. That's what happens when you become idle. The Christian walk is sort of like being on a skateboard on an incline. As long as you're pushing with the skateboard, you're going to be heading uphill. But the moment you coast, you don't just stay where you are. You find yourself regressing. That's what was happening here in this church. They were uh, falling backwards and they were becoming busybodies uh, because there were some who were doing no work at all. It's probably speaking directly to the men who should be providing for their households. So let's take a look at what it means to be unruly. And then we'll look at what it means to admonish. And so the Greek word here is pretty interesting. It means to draw up or to arrange. To draw up or to arrange. But it's the the opposite of that. So what we're dealing with here is something that is not drawn up, something that is not well arranged. This is a word that has its origin in military language. Um, And it describes somebody who is deviating from the prescribed order or rule. So when we're filling in our blanks here, the unruly one has deviated from the prescribed order or rule. And it's a military term that describes an individual or a group of soldiers who have gone off on their own. They have violated their instructions and they have progressed on their own wisdom, on their own understanding. Um, they have advanced beyond a position of safety. They're outside of safety and now they're exposed to a significant degree of danger because they have advanced beyond their position of safety. And the unruly person, this is inherent in their character. This is the kind of person they are, at least in this area of their life. And they lack the restraint that they need to stay within that order. This is something that's part of their character, at least in this part of their life. It's who they are. This is not the person who has recently stumbled into a sin. This is a pattern of their life where they're consistently wandering and straying beyond the authority that's placed over them. And the natural course of their mind is to retain freedom in any way possible. And living under authority, at least in this area of their life, is not even a consideration. It's not an option to them. Uh, They want to live apart from that. They want to live beyond that. Um, It's not part of their natural thought process to stay within the order that God has ordained in his word. So we've got a lot of parents here with young kids. You know how it is when you go to the, the pharmacist and you get a prescription. And the, the two main things that I've learned from my wife about prescriptions is you need to understand the dosage and you need to understand the interval. Right? It's right there. It's printed for you. If you can read, you're in good shape. So all you have to do is follow that. The unruly one is the one who just bags the prescription. They ignore it. And they take the medication at whatever dosage whatever interval um, they choose and they want to and obviously they've strayed beyond a position of safety they're in a position of great danger because of it because they're applying their own wisdom above and against the wisdom of God's design for them this person has no thought of staying inside of God's design of, of order for them in this area of their life whatever area of life it is they have no thoughts about that And so this person actually needs to have those thoughts added into them. And that's exactly what an admonishment is. Um, The word admonish means to place within the mind. Okay, So when you're admonishing somebody, you're placing something within the mind because it's not already there. And uh, notice the direction that that things are, are moving in here. You're taking something that's from outside of the person and you're putting it inside of the person because that's already lacking in the person. So to admonish is to place a warning into the mind. Okay. So when you read the word admonish in Scripture, the, the true definition is a warning that's being placed into the mind for a person because they don't have the capacity, they don't have the ability to see what needs to be seen. This is a stern warning or exhortation. It's a sharp reproof. And it's designed to rescue the one who has strayed beyond God's design for them. This is stern. Um, and the one doing the admonishing is the one coming and he's saying, you really, really need this. You, you need this. Um, 
Chances are you don't see this. I need to ask you just to listen to me because there is a message that I have for you that you don't have uh, that you need to have. And it's a reproof that aims to do two things. The first thing it wants to do is it wants to show them their sin. The second thing it wants to do is it wants to show them a clear path of repentance from that sin. So uh, we want to make sure we understand exactly what the unruly person is. They've strayed beyond a, a prescribed order or rule. And the admonishing that they need is, is words of instruction that are placed into their mind. And so we have our own ideas of what that person might look like. Um, it might look like a man who consistently complains about his work, about his job. He comes home and he looks at you, and the first thing out of his mouth about work, when you say, how was work? He just runs off with this list of complaints about work. It was so hard because of this and this and this. And he has completely lost sight of God's design for his work, and that is to provide for his family, not to build his own esteem. That man needs an admonishment. He needs a warning placed into his mind because he's in an unhealthy place in the way that he views his work. It could be a friend of yours who ignores biblical principles in some area of their life, and you've gone to them, and you've gone to them, and you've gone to them, and they just don't have any sense of understanding whatsoever of where they truly stand. It could be a sheep who is consistently difficult to shepherd for the elders in his church. And he's so unteachable that the elder service and uh, service and shepherding of that sheep has just become a grief to them. And that's the man who's described in Hebrews 13, 17. Um, and he's consistently like that. That's his character and that's his nature. The focus here is on the kind of person one is. So again, it's somebody who's wandered beyond God's design and rule for them, and they need to have a warning placed into their mind. So uh, what I did was I put together six principles that would help us talk about how we would go about providing this admonishment for them. What I'm going to do is just give you the principle, and I hope I consolidated it into a few short words, and I'm going to give you a reference. So... Perhaps you could jot down the principle and the reference. Six things that would help you as you admonish. First of all, remember your own condition. Remember your own original condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, remind us exactly who we used to be before the Lord. Uh, the best instrument in God's hands is a humble instrument. And there is nothing that will humble you like remembering who you used to be. Um, I find it helpful to review this in my prayer life on a very regular basis. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. Remember that you were walking in your sins. You weren't just walking, you were walking according to the course of this world. You were, working, you were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Everything that you see out there in the world that is lost and that is broken and is wrong, you used to fit right into that. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged the desires of our flesh and our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. Remind yourself of who you used to be and what God has done to redeem you. So remember your original condition. Secondly, examine yourself first. Before you go to anybody with anything, examine yourself. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? Here's the instruction. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You're going to go to a sister. Um, you need clear vision to help them. You can't help them if there is a log in your eye that's, that's clouding your vision, that's confusing your vision, that's confusing your thought process. The most loving thing you can do to the one that, that you're going to go to, um, and they need to be gone to, uh, is for you to come to them in the right frame of mind, and that's having dealt with yourself first. Third thing we need to do, when, when you hear the word admonish, you just think of this you're going to come with all of your power and all of your strength. Uh, you're just going to come to them and unload on them. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, embrace gentleness. Embrace gentleness. 
Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself. We need to understand a sharp rebuke, a sharp warning can be gentle. The emphasis, the power in what you're saying is not in your volume, it's not in your tone, it's not in your facial expression. It's in the content of what you have to share. The fourth principle is point them to their heart. When you bring something to somebody and they're thinking, oh, I can't do this anymore, and I'm going to set up these rules that are going to keep me from doing this forever. It starts in your heart, right, guys? Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Ananias and Sapphira have sold a plot of land, and they're bringing the proceeds of the sale. They're bringing a portion of the proceeds of the sale, and they misrepresent what the portion is. The issue here is not whether they were bringing a greater amount or a lesser amount. The issue is that they misrepresented what this was for their own advancement and their own gain. And Peter is dealing with Ananias before Ananias drops dead. And he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Whatever it is that your friend, your sister, your brother, your husband, your child is involved in that they need a a warning spoken into their life for, the repentance from that has to start at a heart level. It has to. We just don't have the capacity to sustain ourselves if this doesn't start in our hearts. And their unruliness will continue until they determine in their heart to leave their sin. Not in their will and in their mind and with all of their strength, but in their heart. They, they place their affections on that which they've not placed their affections on. Fifth, help them look like and understand what biblical repentance is. Explain biblical repentance. And that's what we talked about in our disciplines this morning. 2 Corinthians 7.11. Walk through with them. Okay, this is what vindication looks like. It looks like a clear pattern away from this. Don't tell me you're repenting when um, there is a really steady continuation of sin in your life in this area. That's not repentance. Talk to them about indignation. How disgusted are you? How disappointed How repulsed are you by your own sin? A biblical repentance has that. A biblical repentance has a reverence for God where God is in view here in all of this. This is not just a rule you you have to obey. This is a reverence for God that drives you into holiness of life. You you want to show them that their unruliness has harmed their relationship with the Lord and, and true repentance desires a restoration of that relationship. You explain to them all of Christ's grace to them. That when, because Christ was raised from the dead, we can walk in newness of life. Uh, Romans chapter 6 is great. Walk them through all of the grace realities in Romans chapter 6. Because Christ was raised from the dead, sin is no longer master over us. You can actually do this. The world out there can't do this, but you can. Uh, that's what biblical repentance looks like. So it involves a zeal in utilizing all of that grace and so forth. And lastly, number six, be clear about God's grace. Take them to Romans 6. Show them the promises in Romans 6. My favorite is in verse 4. I love this. Um, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Sit with your friend and show them. Christ actually did raise from the dead. The resurrection is the most significant event in human history for us as it relates to walking in newness of life. Because we are no longer bound by sin. We are freed from sin. You are in an unruly position right now, and you have the capacity to leave that by God's grace. That's how you can help them. So I hope those are helpful for you. A couple of questions came to mind as I'm thinking about this. I thought about this last year, and What if the unruly one is my husband? He's head over me, right? Um, But he's in an unruly place. He's in a place of unruliness, and I I need to go to him. How do I admonish the one who's over me? Seems like something that I need to be very careful with. Um, First of all, pray before you do anything. Uh, It's so easy. I know this. I've been married 26 years. It's so easy to see something and to want to run after it right away, right? Don't trust yourself right away. Trust the word. Pray and allow the spirit to speak to you and allow the word to inform you. 
Remember that we need to be quick to listen and, and slow to speak. And so when you listen to God's word speaking to you, that affects how quickly you are to speak to somebody else. But go to them within your biblical role. I understand my, my role as your wife. I understand that um, you are the one who is um, over me, and I am your helper suitable, and I am coming in this role to you because this is part of God's design for this relationship, is that he puts me in your life to allow me to speak into your life in this area. This is part of God's design for us. So bear those things in mind. Explain to them that this is how the body actually cares for itself. This is a very small piece of the body. Ephesians 4.16, I mentioned this at the beginning of our time together. This is part of God's design is how we function properly. And when we function properly by me bringing something to you and by you listening and we talking, and it might be a little bit of a rocky road, but we're, we're moving forward. That's God's design for how the body is to cause the growth of the body, and that's what we want here. So my, my design and my aim and my heart is for your sanctification. So I hope those are helpful for you. Again, very, very tricky. Very, very difficult, but it's, it's one where God provides you everything you need to do this well. There are a couple of, of helps from Proverbs that really, really help us. Your husband is not always going to be responsive to your first approach to him. I know that in my own life, I wasn't responsive immediately to the things that my wife brings to me all the time. Um, Proverbs eleven fourteen is very, very helpful. Where there is no guidance, the people fail. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. By God's grace, he has put me in your life. There is counsel that I can provide to you because I'm in your life. Um, and there is victory there. Um, apart from guidance, you will fail. So Proverbs 11.14, Proverbs 12.15 is, is really, really helpful. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You're not exalting yourself. You're just there saying there is counsel that's being brought to you. It happens to be brought to you from me. The wise man is the one who listens to this and works with it and walks together with me in this. You're not usurping your, your husband's role of leader over you as you do that. That's a function that he gave his husband, her husband over you. This is how a husband and a wife walk together. They look at scripture. And in all of this, the authority of God's word is what is speaking over both of you. So we want to keep that in front of us. So admonish the unruly. The church in Thessalonica needed to admonish the unruly. Okay? All right. Encourage the faint-hearted. All right. So we're going to talk about what it means to be faint-hearted. Uh, This is, again, another compound word in the Greek, and it means a person who has a small soul. So the faint-hearted one has a small soul. And this is the only instance of this word in the New Testament. The person with a small soul is the person who is the opposite of one who is assertive and confident. Um, This is a person who doesn't fear. They don't have a lot of hardship and difficulty in their life. Um, They're seeing a lot of success in their life right now. This is the opposite of that person. It's the opposite of the person whose job is going well, their parenting is going well, uh, their health is really in a good place, everything they touch is going well. Um, The one with a small soul is the opposite of that person. It's the one who becomes increasingly deflated as a difficult situation in their life remains unchanged. Something is difficult. It's either a relationship or a situation or a condition that, that remains unchanged. And it's a difficult circumstance that has lasted so long that the person begins to find a lot of difficulty in finding joy in the course of life that God has for them that day. Uh, let me give you some examples. Let's say that you're in a field of work that requires a certification, and a certain kind of certification that you have to take a test for and you have to pass that test in order to proceed onward in your course of work. And uh, you just are not able to pass that test. You've taken it five times, and you can't pass the test. That person become faint-hearted, could become very faint-hearted. My wife and I know somebody who's uh, taken the Arizona bar four times and has not passed it. 
each and every one of those four times. Uh, I have a relative who's uh, an engineer, and in his field of engineering, they take this thing called the practicing engineer, and he's taken that test many, many times, and he hasn't passed it. Um, let's say you have a loved one who needs care from you, and uh, it is falling on you to provide that care. And uh, that care is very demanding, it's very challenging, it's very hard, and uh, it doesn't look like the need for that care is going away anytime soon. And that person is, on top of that, they're complicating matters by making it more of a challenge for you to provide that care. They don't always treat you well. It can become easy to become faint-hearted in that. Thessalonians were faint-hearted. They were small-souled because they were suffering persecution from the Jews, and that's a persecution that wasn't about to end anytime soon. You see that in chapter 2. It says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You're just like the church in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. The word endured there in the middle of verse 14 implies that there's a prolonged suffering. There's something that's been going on for quite a while. It's probably not going to end anytime soon. And that what that is what makes a person faint-hearted. And so that's why Paul sent Timothy to them, to understand how they were doing and um, hear back from Timothy. And so the, the instruction here is that you're to encourage the one who is small-souled. And the Greek word here is another compound word, and the compound word is two things. In one part, it involves a proximity, a close proximity. And the other part is soothing speech. So to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. Okay. So when you see somebody who's faint-hearted for whatever reason, whatever circumstance it is, what the believer is to do is to provide comforting words from close proximity couple of observations about this encouragement. First, effective encouragement comes from somebody who is near you. If you want to provide encouragement to somebody, you need to be near them. And near them in, in some capacity. You need to be in their life. I don't think it's meaning just proximity, but you need to be near them in their life. A friend who draws near is one who's willing to leave their own comfort zone, their own list of tasks, their own things to do, their own priorities, in order to be able to care for a person. They're not kept away from that person by uh, whatever the unpleasant circumstances in that person's life might be. They're not kept away by that. They're not kept away by a, a list of commitments that they've entered into in their life that keeps them from being able to come near to somebody. If we're unwilling to enter into an unpleasant situation to walk alongside a friend, um, we can't bring encouragement to them um, because they're living in a place that we're unwilling to go. So in order to be an encouragement to somebody, we have to be near to them. So it's very good for us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. And uh, one of those questions is, are there a list of circumstances or a set of circumstances that I have a bias against that I really just don't want to go near? whatever it is. Perhaps it's something about their home life. Perhaps it's something about where they live. Perhaps it's something about the way they communicate. Do I have some biases against those things that are going to keep me away from my friend who needs encouragement? A second one is, a question we can ask ourselves is, have I chosen a level of activity in my life that prevents me from entering into the life of the faint-hearted to even notice them? Am I so maxed with all that I have to do that uh, it's difficult for me to notice the faint-hearted one around me? Our ability to come alongside our brother or sister oftentimes is a function of our availability. Okay, secondly, the effective encouragement comes from somebody who has a comforting message. And a comforting message is a message that brings true comfort and it does two things. Uh, first, it acknowledges the situation for what it is. Um, we don't want to run to the solution and run right over their issue. You know, you're sitting there and you're faint-hearted, and someone comes to you and they go, okay, here's what you need to do. Um, it's very helpful when that person starts by acknowledging your situation. This is hard. This must be really, really hard. I find myself in that situation in my role here often. Uh, you know, I've, I've never been in that personally. 
I have no idea what that's like, but I imagine that's really hard. Share with me some about how that is hard because I don't pretend to know or understand what your life is like. It's very, very helpful just to acknowledge that their situation is difficult, that you need help even being informed on what their situation is like. Second thing is you want to bring hope and you want to bring comfort from the only thing that brings true comfort, and that is the gospel itself. So you want to encourage your friend with gospel truth that resets their perspective because sometimes a person who's been in a a very challenging situation that has made them faint-hearted has lost sight of some truth. They've lost sight of the essentials of their salvation. They need to be reminded of God's choice of them. Don't forget who you are in Christ in all of this. Don't forget Christ's suffering on your behalf. Don't forget that God has lavished his grace upon you for every day of your life including this present trial. Don't forget where you're going when you die. So many times when you read the New Testament, you read about a discussion about the end times. And and I used to believe that this was all about theology, and it's all about how these events are going to get ordered when Christ comes again, and when is the judgment, when is the rapture, when is the tribulation, and all of this. That's all very important. But when you read those, very often what you find is encouragement is in the flow and in the theme of all of this. It happens that when we're in a situation, we can find true encouragement knowing how it's going to end. We don't know when it's going to end, but we know how it's going to end. So what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, do I know the gospel well enough to use it as a source of encouragement to my friend? That's the kind of encouragement they truly need. Do I understand how God's grace has been lavished upon me, how God's grace is available to them, It's surprising to me the number of people who don't understand what grace really is, what grace enables us to do and walk in newness of life. We want to make sure that we're we're well equipped to be able to explain that to people. This is why a believer can live differently in the midst of trial than anybody else. It's because they have something available to them that that the rest of the world doesn't have, and that is God's grace. And the other thing is, uh, do I regularly encourage myself with the gospel truth when I am in a difficult situation? Let's not go to others with um, lots of help that we're not applying to ourselves. So Paul does this in several different ways in um, the letters. In the second letter, he says to them in chapter 2, verse 13, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Very clear, God has chosen you. You're beloved, you're very dear and precious to the Lord. Remind your friend that God has had very specific, very special, very intentional thoughts about you before he spoke light into existence. He knew everything you would do. He knew about this situation. He understood your sin. He understood everything you would do. And he accounted for all of it before there was anything. That's how important you were to him. And he placed every bit of sin that was in you inside of his son on the cross because all of your sin was an offense to God. And you want to be encouraged by what God has done for you. You have a problem that is much, much bigger than your present situation that's been resolved. And you have no worries, you have no fear over that because you're new in Christ. God loves you, he loves you desperately. And he's demonstrated that by sending someone to die for you before you were even born. And then we began to live out everything for which that Savior died. So remind them of their present condition with their salvation. And remember them, remind them of their future position. This letter is a great letter. You know, I, you read chapter 4, and the second half of chapter 4 is all about Christ's return. He's returning. He's going to rapture away the body of Christ, the church. And uh, it goes on with this four or five verse explanation of what is going to happen. And it ends in verse 18. Sometimes people forget verse 18. It's so important. Verses 15 through 17 talk about the Lord's return, talk about everything else, all the things that are going to happen. Um, We who are alive are going to remain, and we're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall be with the Lord. Verse 18 says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Remember who he's writing to here. He's writing to a church that is very persecuted. First Thess 4.18, comfort one another with these words. Eschatology is not about getting your 
your pluses and your minus here. It's not about dotting your I's and crossing your T's. It's about being comforted by the truth that God is coming for his own. Paul's primary purpose there is, is not really just to tell them exactly what's going to happen, although he does that. His primary thing there is to bring encouragement to them. And he's using the truth of the end time. So that's what we need to do. We need to encourage the one who's faint-hearted. We need to come to them with truth from the gospel uh, that encourages them. Encourage them in their present situation and encourage them in their future situation. All right, the weak. We're going to help the weak. That's the next one. So Paul has said, admonish the unruly. Help those people understand where they are. They have have wandered beyond God's design for them in some area of their life. Encourage the faint-hearted. And there's another kind of people here that are weak. The one who is weak is obviously the one who is lacking in strength. And the main focus here is not really on a physical condition. The main thing here that's in view is that there is a spiritual strength that is lacking. This person is lacking a sound biblical foundation. This is a person who's easily misled. They hear something and they buy into it right away. This is a person who lacks discernment. Uh, There seems to be a consistent pattern in their life of poor judgment. They're not characterized by using scripture to inform their decisions. They have a worldview of all things that are around them that's not informed by scripture. They can be gripped by fear and they can view a situation from a very secular, not a biblical perspective. And they fall into patterns of sin pretty easily because of all of that. This person needs help. This person truly needs help. They might find themselves in a point of physical weakness that has its roots in the spiritual foundation that's very poor. Uh, But the main thing here is that bringing help is to bring necessary aid to them. This person truly, truly needs help. And they don't need the immediate help of physical things as much as they need a strengthened foundation. And the church in Thessalonica was very weak in their understanding with the return of Christ. They thought that the return of Christ was imminent. They they thought it was right around the corner. And this led some of them to make some poorly informed choices about their idleness and things like that. So Paul um, had to address it in both the first and the second letter. And he helps them with clear teaching about the return of Christ and about the day of the Lord. He spells that out at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And the real issue was not that people were idle and lazy in Thessalonica. The real issue was they had a very poor understanding of the return of Christ that was leading them into this idleness that really wasn't there beforehand so Paul's help addressed a deficit in their understanding about the time frame of Christ's return so that they could live more God glorifying lives there is no glory there is no gospel that's being put on display when you have a group of guys sitting around waiting for Christ to return so that's the idea we want to provide necessary aid and we provide the aid by helping that person grow in their biblical foundation that will help them view their circumstances biblically and accurately. That means that we don't always help in the way that seems most obvious. A person might have a very real physical need that comes about because of a weakness in their understanding of some underlying principle. For example, you've got a guy who's always pressed to meet his monthly bills. He's always about 100 bucks short. He's continually squandered the resources that the Lord has entrusted to his care. And he's squandered the opportunity to equip himself so that he has the ability to provide for himself. Um, The help that that person needs the most is not the extra hundred bucks to make ends meet that month. The help that the person needs the most is to understand God's design for work. Use this example with the guys in Bill. Um, They need to see God's design for work so that they can strengthen their understanding of what it means to be a biblical man. Um, let's suppose there's a guy and uh, or a girl, and she can't stop talking about a young man. All she talks about is, he's wonderful. He's tall, he's handsome, he's articulate, uh, he's got a great job, 
the, the eyes are glazing over, and everything is going well. And um, you know, it's it's not biblically sound to say that person is just smitten with the young man. That's not um, the truth of what is happening there. What's happening is that she has a weakness in her understanding of God's design for a biblical man. There's nothing wrong with looking at a man and saying, he looks like a really great guy. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we measure a man by how he's doing in terms of God's design and God's description of what a a biblical man is. You find that in Ephesians chapter 5. This is how a man should love his wife. When you see a man beginning to do these things, he, he loves one like Christ loved the church. That's how you measure the man. Does he show that in, in lots of areas of his life? Is he characterized by self-giving love? So one of the things we need to ask ourselves is, am I discerning enough to recognize when my friend is weak, has a weak understanding? You know, you're here at Wellspring or you're talking on the phone, you're texting with somebody, they're communicating to you. Are you listening well to see how they view their time, how they view their opportunities, how they view their kids, how they view the resources that God has entrusted to them, how they view their husband's work and everything like that. Be listening carefully when you're talking with someone. Be be sure to speak well with them, but listen well as well. Not that you've got this radar that's ready to judge somebody, but just listen because we all need help from one another. And there are ways that we can speak phrases, we can speak truth, we can interject with scripture that, that will help our friend grow in their strength that they need. Another question to ask ourselves is, do I understand their, their root need? You know, their root need is not the $100 they need to make rent. They're probably going to have that same need next month. Uh, the root need is, is a true understanding of God's design for, for you in that area of your life. Do I, do I have the ability to communicate that graciously? Uh, it is so easy for me to jump in and just nail somebody with when I see the the obvious need. It's easy to just nail them. Here's what you need. Uh, there is a way to do that with grace that doesn't involve hitting them over the head with my Bible. Um, so when we have a person who appears to be weak in an area, we need to be very discerning about how to provide them with the biblical help that they need. The last few minutes, we want to just talk about being patient with everybody. Uh, the word here is, is really good. I think we all know what patience is. We, we've, we either are raising kids or we have been a kid ourselves. Uh, we understand what it means to be patient, especially with one who is unaware that you're striving towards patience yourself. Uh, that can be hard. Um, but the idea here is it's a person who's long-tempered. Long-tempered. And they're refusing to retaliate with anger. Your long temperance keeps you from retaliating with anger. So there's a sense in the kind of person that you are, and there's a sense in the kind of responses that this keeps you from. This means that you're re- you are willing and you are ready to walk with somebody as long as they need to be walked with, although your methods may change over time. There's not a, a ton to say here other than it, it comes from the kind of person we are as we shepherd our hearts. And when you're spending time alone with the Lord every morning and you're reminding yourself of how patient God was with you before you came to Christ, that is the first step in being patient with other people. And it's really good sometimes to remind yourself of how long you lived before you came to saving faith and how patient God was with you, um, withholding from you the things that you deserve while he waited for the day that he selected for your salvation. When you remind that, yourself of that, um, that helps you remember the right context for our patience with the one who's, who's in front of us. And it's very important for us to remember that I am a tool in God's hands. I'm an instrument in God's hands. It's not incumbent upon me to allow them to change whatever their circumstance is for me. We want to be a tool in God's hands to bring about God's design for them and their sanctification. So those are just a few words about being patient. So uh, there are times when a person is more than one of these things. It's possible for a person to be unruly and weak. 
because their unruliness has stemmed from the fact that they have a weakness in understanding in some area of their life. It's possible for a person to be faint-hearted and weak at the same time. They lack the right understanding in something. Um, and they've made some choices that have led them to a, a prolonged situation that is very difficult and challenging for them. So you might be talking to somebody, you might find yourself in conversation with somebody who's more than one of these things at the same time. And God's design for us is that we just be a tool in his hands to provide the kind of help, the kind of admonition, the kind of encouragement that those people need. So that's pretty much what I had for you guys this morning. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for listening. I truly do pray that, that God uses this to, to help you in your own home your own household, whether it's with your husband or your kids or your parents, uh, siblings or anything else. Thanks for coming. Let me pray. Lord, I praise you for each one of these women. I praise you and I thank you for the work that you have done in their lives to rescue them. Thank you, Lord, that they are no longer slaves to sin. Lord, thank you for pouring into them affections that are from you, that allow them to love you and allow them to love those around them. Lord, I pray for them as they enter back into the rest of their day today, whether it involves a husband or it involves kids or it involves parents. Lord, I pray that you would grant them the grace they need to be ones who are ready to admonish, ones who are ready to encourage, and ones who are ready to help. Lord, I pray that when it is challenging to be patient, you would grant them the grace they need. I do thank you for them. I thank you for each one of the families and marriages that's represented here. I pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of those households. I thank you for all of the children that are represented here, both the children that are here and the children that are on the way. Lord, I pray that in all of these things you would accomplish your purpose for these households. Thank you for sending us your son, Jesus. Thank you that he suffered in our place at the cross, accomplishing for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. He satisfied your anger against us. And we have an eternity of joy with you to look forward to. So again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this place where they are gifts from you. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.